I believe that the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6 are not judgments from God, but are actually a deception by Satan in order to usher in his false apocalypse. And we'll begin talking about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, uh, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we are on Revelation chapter 6, the opening of the first six seals of the the, um, the sealed scroll or book. And in the uh, last few episodes, I was giving you the reasoning behind the the premise that I just spoke about in the introduction, which is that these six seals, which are usually considered uh, the beginning of God's judgment of the tribulation, are not actually judgments from God, but are actually a deception from Satan. And I think I went into pretty good detail of why I believe that. And you can uh, look at the last three, four episodes in order to get that background. But now that's all out of the way, I really want to jump in and just take a really deep dive into uh, Revelation chapter six. We'll be breaking these verses down over the next uh, probably five uh, episodes because I want to give as much detail as possible about this really important time in prophetic history. So in this episode, we're going to, I'm going to help you understand what these horsemen are, because we're going to start with the four horsemen, obviously those are the first six seals. And so we're going to look at what these horsemen probably are, as well as covering the first horseman, the rider on the white horse. So let's just get started by diving in to the passage we're going to be covering today. Uh, Revelation chapter six, starting with verse one. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Okay, and that's all we're gonna study uh, uh, during uh, during this episode. And you know we'll, we'll cover the next two horsemen in the next episode. But let's just start breaking down what we have here. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals so as we know, this the seals he's opening are from that from the scroll that he that the lamb and the lamb alone was able was worthy to open. We no, I'm not gonna spend any time on that. We talked about that earlier. This scroll is a title deed to the earth, and it's sealed with seven seals. So why are there seven seals on it? What do these seals represent? Well, the best way to interpret the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself where we can, where we can look at other areas in the Bible where we see the same or similar uh, phenomena and we can extrapolate from that. So when something is sealed, generally speaking in the Bible, it means it's either sealed as a form of uh, protection or as a type of restraint. Something is sealed back to keep it from coming forward, being restrained, or something is sealed to protect it. And in this case, I think it's actually both. And I would look at the verse that, uh, uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote, and I have it on the screen, where he basically says that the Holy Spirit is sealing the church. And I talked about um, how the Holy Spirit is the restrainer during the series on the rapture. And so when these seals are being broken, what's happening is the Holy Spirit's restraint is being taken away. So things are, that, that the Holy Spirit was, was, with, was holding back, sin, evil, Satan, are now being unleashed. And that's what the four horsemen and, and the other uh, six seals are all about. So let's take a moment to talk about the symbology of these horses and these horsemen. What do they mean? What do they symbolize? Well, we have to look at it from a contemporary standpoint. John is a first century Jew uh, writing to other first century residents. And, and what would they 
understand by these horsemen. Well, when you look at in, in that time, what horsemen, a single horseman or a single rider on a horseman meant, they were, they were usually either one of uh, three things. Uh, either a messenger, that's what horsemen were. They would have to go back. They would have to send messages on horseback. And so you have a single rider who would uh, take messages from one city to another, and he would go on horseback because obviously a horse is faster than a human being. And so messenger, that's one possible uh, uh, possibility of what the horseman could be. Um, a second is a scout. A In a military sense, a, a single horseman would be a scout who was either um, scouting the border of the territory that um, the empire or nation had to see if there were enemies coming. and Or they would be scouting out the, the armies of, an, of, of maybe another um, hostile force that was you know threatening the the country or the empire so they, they could be a scout or a patrol they also had authority they could also be the the lead of a of cavalry because when you, whenever you would go to war you would send your cavalry in first because they would be kind of the heavy infantry as it were and they would you know could do a lot of damage on horseback so those are what they could be they're either messengers a scout a patrol or authoritative cavalry so which ones would these four horsemen be? Well, again, we want to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So, so are there any other areas in the Bible where we see uh, horsemen and riders in this supernatural sense? And there actually is. If we go to the book, the book of Zechariah, in the first chapter, there is a very, very obscure passage that, you know, I'll just read it to you. Still start with Zechariah chapter one, starting with verse eight. And I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered, answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judea, which you were angry these seventy years? And then God replies with a prophetic uh, judgment that he will bring. So, again, and then I said, that, that's, there's no further explanation. Again, very obscure packet passage. You probably haven't heard it preached in from pulpits because it's just, it just doesn't really fit anywhere, except maybe here. Because what do you have here in this verse in Zechariah? You have, oh, you have four horses, four, and possibly four horsemen riding around. Well, this is the only other place in the Bible where you see four horsemen. You have four horsemen here, and you have four horsemen, obviously, here in, in, um, in Revelation chapter 6. Are they the same horsemen? I don't think so because there there's some significant differences. The most the most telling difference is that they're different, the wrong colors. The four horsemen we're going to be talking about are a white, red, black, and uh, pale or pale green. And these horses are red. They're two red ones: sorrel, which is sort of a a reddish orange color, and white. So we only have two to match. We have a in in Zechariah we have a red horse and a white horse, but there's also a, a second red horse. And a horse that's this, you know, sorrel reddish uh, orange color. So they're not the same horses, but but what's more significant is what they're doing. And he said, it says that they they are patrolling the earth. 
These are the ones that the, in verse 10, these are the ones who the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And then they're asked to report. So these are patrolling and scouting horses and what horsemen. And what do they say? They just say, hey, you know, everything is quiet. Nothing's going on. The earth is at rest. And that sounds great, but it's I, I don't think that it's what it's, it's not a good thing. It sounds good, but it's not good because the angel of the Lord, who's actually the angel of the Lord is always the pre-incarnate Jesus. And he cries out to God, the father asking God, when are you going to avenge, um, avenge yourself on the evil nation? So basically they're going throughout the world and they say, everything is quiet. Meaning the world is at rest. Meaning all the evil nations are, they're just, they're fine. They're just getting along great. Nothing, no, no problems. And that upsets the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus, because he doesn't want the nations at rest. He wants God to come down and judge them. He doesn't want business as usual. He wants them to pay for the things that they've done, particularly what they've done to the nation of Israel. Another interesting thing is that many commentators say that myrtle trees or, or myrtle is, is a, an idiom for judgment. So there is some judgment going on here or some aspect of judgment, but these horses are, these horses are patrolling and they're just waiting for something to happen so that they can go forth. So then I believe that these four horsemen in Revelation, if, if we want to draw a parallel, that they are also waiting to go forth and execute some type of judgmental action. Again, I don't believe it's for judgment from God because these are not the same horses. I think they're coming from Satan, but they have the same job description. They're not the same horses, but they have the same job descriptions as they are the heralds. They are the portent. They are the patrol that is going to go forth and bring the um, some cataclysmic things uh, behind them. So that's just that thing is kind of curious. If you want to do more studying on it, uh, feel free to do so. But I, I think that that's an interesting parallel between those two um, as those two verses where we where we see these four horses and four horsemen. So another point, important thing I want to point out is the term in the first verse where it says that one of the four living creatures, they call them four beasts or four living creatures, the four, the cherubim, one of the four cherubs say, come and see. And here is the issue with that. When, when we see come and see, the assumption is that they're talking to John. This is one of those areas where the interpreters of the Bible let, or let their interpretation be informed. I mean, I'm sorry, they let their translation be informed by their interpretation. Again, so let me rephrase that. This is a case where the translators let their interpretation inform their translation because that word come and see, the, the terms come and see, it's not in the original language. It's, the word is just a word that means come or proceed or go. In fact, you will see other uh, translations of the Bible where that term come and see is, is literally translated as come, come or go. There's actually, there are actually no words that, that translate to and see. It just says come. And come could mean come towards me or just come forward, come forth. Proceed, I think, is actually the best interpretation of, of, of that word. It's just, it should just say proceed. Why does it say come and see? Because, again, those most of the translators interpret this as the uh, the uh, the cherubim, the four living creatures, or that the, the one that's talking, specifically talking to John, saying, hey, John, come and see this. Well, honestly, that doesn't make much sense. Where's what is John coming to see? He's not. He's already standing there. He doesn't need to come anywhere. He just he's, he's just looking. And I think the fact that the next word that's written is you know, behold, I looked and saw something, will lead them to believe that that you know, John was coming forward and seeing something. But that's not 
that, that doesn't fit the context and it doesn't fit the grammar in, in the Greek. What it should really say is proceed or go. So it should really say that um, one of the four living creatures says proceed, but they're not talking to John. Why? Because that wouldn't make any sense. Where's John going? He doesn't need to go anywhere. Who are they talking to? I believe they are talking to the horsemen. They are saying go. One of the seals is open and the cherubim say go, proceed to the horse. Basically, it's the equivalent of just saying, hey, giddy up. For those of you who've ever ridden horses, I'm not one of them. I don't like riding horses. I've done it a couple of times. I've had bad experiences. I don't care for it. But when you want a horse to go, you know, you, you, know, you kind of, you know, kick it, you know, use your heels to kind of, you know, kick it a little bit and it starts going. You say, giddy up. That's what the four living creatures are saying. It says, I opened, the four, I opened one of the seals and I heard a voice as if it was a noise of thunder. And one of the um, four living creatures saying, giddy up. Go, proceed. The seal is open. This horseman is released. So that's what this is really all about. When the seal is opened, that horseman is released. And the, one of the four living creatures, the cherubim, say, get going. You, you're, you're free to go. That's what this is all about. He's not talking to John. He is talking to the horseman. Because, again, the, the word is not come and see. There is no and see. It's simply come or proceed or go. And the reason I want to make, I'm making this point so strongly is so that you understand that this supports my idea that these are horsemen that have been held back, been restrained by the Holy Spirit. This is evil that's been restrained. And now that the seal is broken, that the Holy Spirit has been taken out of the way temporarily, this, this gives these, this evil force, these evil horsemen, the, the, um, the freedom to get going. They've been wanting to do it for a while. And now they're, now they're off and running and they can execute their false apocalypse and the first herald of this false apocalypse is the white horse I saw the white horse and he was set upon him had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went forth conquering and to conquer so a, a couple of episodes ago I gave the traditional view of Re Revelation chapter 6 and I said I have a diversion view which I'm explaining right now but I will say this is the one horseman the one seal where I am pretty much in agreement with the traditional view the traditional view is that this rider on the white horse is the so-called Antichrist, the coming world leader, the great beast who we will learn about. Uh, we'll learn about him a bit in this episode and a lot more when we get to Revelation chapters 12 and 13. But I agree that this is the Antichrist. This is the beginning of Satan's false apocalypse. In order to have, what does Satan want to do? Satan mimics God. Satan wants to be in the place of God. He wants to be like the Most High. We see that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Well, if you want to be like God, you have to have, you have to have your, your own Jesus and your own Holy Spirit. You have to have, in, in order to have that, you have to, in order to have your false Messiah, you need to have a false apocalypse. We've talked about that in the last few episodes. And this is how the false apocalypse begins when Satan finally has his way and he's able to uh, begin his conquest of earth. He is his full conquest of earth with putting his by putting his man on the throne. Satan's goal has again always been to mimic the kingdom of God. And this will be one of the one of the two most successful attempts Satan has made. The first most successful attempt was actually early in the book of Genesis with the kingdom of Babel, which was ruled by a man named Nimrod. I've talked about Nimrod quite a bit on Faith by Reason. I, we talked about him some during the Revelation unveiled with the letter to Pergamos. And you will also, you, you can also, you can do a search for him on Faith by Reason. I've done podcasts and blogs on this character. But Nimrod was the first world dictator. 
And what happened in Babel? In Babel, you had all of mankind united, a single world government, the first new world order, as it were. And in this world order, where everyone was in one accord, speaking one language, completely united, and under one ruler, they were able, God said that they would be able to do whatever was whatever they imagined. And what they imagined doing was invading heaven. That's what the Tower of Babel was. It wasn't, it wasn't a high building because they thought they could reach heaven by going up into the sky. No, they were creating, for lack of a better term, they were creating a gateway or a portal into the spiritual realm. Um, the mountains in, in, this, um, in this sense were uh, areas, some, not all mountains obviously, but there were certain mountains, certain areas where the heaven and earth, the spiritual realm and the physical realm intersected. You have Mount Hermon, which is uh, famous for, for that. That's where the the uh, fallen angels, if you look at the Book of Enoch, the, the pseudepigraphal, apocryphal Book of Enoch, Mount Hermon is where the fallen angels came down and intermingled with men in Genesis chapter 6. So there are areas on the earth where, where the spiritual realm and the, fear, and, the spiritual, and the physical realm intersect. Babel was there, the attempt for man to make one of those himself in an artificial tower. And again, God said they would have succeeded if he hadn't confused their languages. And this is why I believe the Antichrist will actually be Nimrod 2.0, because you're going to have the same situation. You're going to have all of the earth united under one single world government, and they're going to try to do the exact same thing. They're going to try to invade and overthrow God, because that's always been Satan's goal. And his Antichrist is how it all begins. And again, I'm going to talk about this a lot more when we get um, you know, towards the, the middle of, of the book in, in uh, chapters uh, 12 and 13, particularly chapter 13. Um, and remember that in the last episode, I related these um, these horsemen, the, these uh, the first six seals, basically, to the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus describes things that are going to happen before the tribulation that are, that are not the end. And the first thing he says is, take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and, and will deceive many. So this is the first deception. But again, it's to be fair, it does say many will come in my name. So there will be many false Christs. So how does this fit in with the one guy who is the Antichrist, who will be the, the last false Christ? Keep in mind something that I mentioned a few episodes ago is that Satan doesn't know when these things are going to occur. Satan does not know God's timetable. All Satan knows is that when this when this happens, when, when the restrainer is taken away, when he is finally given his unfettered opportunity to rule the earth, he's going to have a short time. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. So he's had to have his guy, an antichrist figure, someone who could take this role of a false messiah. He had to have someone at the ready in every generation. Nimrod was the first one. Satan did not just come up with the idea of having an antichrist yesterday. He's been wanting this from day one. He's been wanting to mimic the the, the Trinity and the the advents of uh, the advent of Jesus. He wanted he's wanted to mimic God from day one. So he's always been trying to do this. So in every generation, Satan has had someone waiting in the wings for his opportunity to be this world ruler, and so. And, and, and in this case, Jesus specifically says they will come in his name, in Jesus' name, saying that I am the Christ. Yet in Christ, it means the, it means, uh, the anointed one, the, the Messiah. And so we have examples 
throughout most of modern history, starting from about you know 300 AD up until modern times, we've had someone sitting in Rome saying that he is the Christ. He came, he's someone who's come in Jesus's name, claiming to represent Jesus and saying that he is the Christ. This person is called the Vicarius Christus, the Vicar of Christ. We know him as the Pope. Every Pope has claimed to be God on earth. They've claimed to be the voice of God. So there you have people who, again, denotatively are saying that could, we're, I'm coming in Jesus's name saying, I am the Christ. So there, there we go. So I'm not, am I saying that the, that popes are, were all potential antichrists? No, not all of them. A lot of them, I believe, were. But I believe that Hitler was uh, a, someone who, if, 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 if the rapture had happened during the 1930s or 40s, then I think Hitler would, would, have, would have been Satan's choice because he fit all the criteria. Anyway, my point is that there's always been someone ready to step into that role of antichrist, which is why Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many because many have been have fallen for these false Christs throughout the ages, but there will be a final definitive false Christ who will be, you know, this rider on the white horse who will, you know, uh, fulfill uh, Satan's goal of, you know, world domination. It's one world government and he will deceive the nations, including the Jews. The Jews will think he's a Messiah. The uh, Muslims will, will consider him the, the, the 12th Iman or the, or the Makhdi. Every single religion on earth, every false religion on earth has a messianic figure, no matter what that religion is. Why? Because all false religions come or come from Satan or his fallen angels to some degree. And so they all have that same, the same figure. And once this final Antichrist comes into play, he will say, hey, this is me. I'm Jesus. I'm the 12th Imam. I'm the Mahdi. I'm Krishna for the, for the, for, for those who believe in Hinduism, all of the different, he will claim to be every one of these messianic figures. And we're going to talk about how that's going to work when we get um, to, to the, uh, the fourth seal, um, actually the, the, the sixth seal, but just know that, that that is the plan. So this rider on the white horse, it, it says that a, a bow, he, he had a bow. And I mentioned before in a couple of episodes ago that they interpret this as, as, as since he has a bow and no arrows, he's coming in on a platform of peace. So he has military power. He's not, he's coming in on a platform of peace because he doesn't have the arrows to shoot. And that's very possible. There's one other provocative idea about the bow. Where else do we see a bow in the Bible? Uh, well, let's go all the way back to Genesis in the, the story of the flood, the, the flood narrative. What does what happens at the end of the flood after um, Noah, the, the ark comes on dry um, land and God speaks to Noah? What does he do? God says, I will put my bow in the sky. And we, call, we call it a rainbow, of course, as what? As a token of a covenant. And it's the same word, by the way, the bow that's the word that's translated bow for bow and arrow is also the same word that if you go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old, what we call the Old Testament, it's the same word. So that bow, it could mean a bow and arrow, but it could also mean that same bow, like a rainbow, not the, not that saying that the Antichrist is going to have a rainbow in his hand, but the, remember the bow was a token of a covenant. God made the covenant that he would never uh, destroy the earth again by a flood. That was God's covenant. So if he has a bow in his hand, maybe that bow is a token of a covenant. What covenant? A covenant with Israel, because remember that thing that starts the tribulation, the thing that frames a seven year period we call the tribulation is a covenant that the Antichrist confirms with Israel for seven years. 
And that seven years is what is, is, this, is this, the period of time we call the tribulation. So it could be a bow, like a bow and arrow, but maybe he has in his hand the token of a covenant and that covenant with Israel. So provocative. I'll let, you, I'll let you run with that if you want to. A crown was given to him and his crown is a Stephanos. It's a not a crown of royalty, but a crown of victory, of conquest. And it was given to him. He didn't earn it. It's given to him by Satan. Satan just makes basically anoints him to, for this role. Now, he doesn't do anything to earn it. It's just, it's given to him. The authority is given to him by Satan. We talked about this uh, before a couple of episodes ago. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. He begins his campaign of conquest. So how does this work? We're going we're gonna to wrap things up by looking at how the Antichrist comes to power. So let's look at what the world looks like. You have the the next event on the prophetic calendar is what we call the rapture of the church, the intended rapture, the, the rapture that Jesus intends for his church. Doesn't mean everyone's going to be who believes is going to be raptured. I actually believe that only those who are watching and waiting for it will be taken out. And I'm not going to get into that debate right here. You can go back to the series on the rapture. I, I did a couple episodes on it. Look, look, go there if you want to argue for or against it. This isn't the place for it. But you have the rapture occurring. You have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people just disappearing in the blink of an eye. What's going to happen after that? Things are going to be nuts. People are not going to know what's happening. They're, the, all the, stock, the market, the world financial markets are going to crash. Again, the, the, the markets crash if if one if a major company has a bad report, I mean, if, if Apple uh, computers, if, if they have like if they don't meet their financial goals, the market crashes, you know. So can you imagine what would happen when millions of people disappear without explanation? Markets are going to crash. There's going to be turmoil. There's going to be food shortages. There are going to be riots. It's pe- things are just going to be insane. And as that's happening. You know, Satan will know that the, his time is, is, is near and he's going to start pushing his his man onto the scene. And he's called a little horn in the book of Daniel. Horn is, is a symbol of authority. In the book of Daniel, it says that this little horn is going to start. He's going to start off small, but he's going to grow in authority and he is going to become great. He's going to start. So the world is in turmoil. You'll hear about some obscure figure. Maybe he's a political figure. Maybe he's a grassroots leader. But he's, you're going to start hearing about some guy who seems to have the answers. And he's going to grow in fame and in influence. People are going to start to believe in him. He, he's going to, again, have the answers people are seeking. And the answers he's seeking is, are going, answers that people are seeking that he's going to be giving them are actually blasphemous. One of the many... I would say one, not many, one of the main characteristics of, of the Antichrist, when you look at all the prophecies of him in the Old Testament, and there are tons of them, one thing that always seems to be his main characteristic is that he's always running off at the mouth. This guy cannot shut up. He's always speaking. He's always talking. He's always saying great things. And by great, it doesn't mean positive great. It just means like very pompous, very extraordinary, astounding things he's going to be saying. And, but he says them against God. He's not just speaking great and, and charismatic words. He's speaking them specifically against God. We'll see throughout the book of Revelation that the this this the Antichrist is blaspheming God and those who dwell in heaven. So God, we understand. We understand you know who God is. We we understand who Jesus is. He you know, it, it says he speaks great things against against God, against the Lamb, and against those who dwell in heaven. Who are those who dwell in heaven? Well, if you're a Christian. 
it should be you and me. If we are taken in these in this in the first of the three raptures, who's he's going to be blaspheming us? He's going to be saying that we are not who people think we are. By that, I mean there will be people who who will recognize that the raptures occurred, and they will say, "Oh my God, God's finally come and taken Christians to heaven. The Christians are the good guys. The Antichrist is going to come out and say, "Oh no, 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 that's not what's going on. The Christians are not the good guys." The Christians are the bad guys. God is the bad guy. Jesus is the bad guy. And who, who are the good guys? Well, obviously, it's going to be Satan and the fallen angels. And we'll talk about them a little bit more again when we get to some of the later seals. Where do I get this idea? Well, again, it's not something I just came up with. This is actually an idea that is actually prominent in the occultic and New Age world. Worldviews, rather. The worldview is that the... The, the new age, which isn't new, it's just paganism and, and, and it's just old paganism and, and new trappings and new wrappings. But you will hear a lot if you study this kind of stuff, which I have, that they believe that man, secular man, is due to evolve into a higher state, into a higher state of consciousness. You will hear that all over the place in, in new age literature and in new age teachings that man needs to evolve to a higher spiritual state. But there's something holding man back. The reason that man has not evolved to his new higher spiritual state is that there are people who are clinging on to old beliefs, to dark beliefs, and they are the ones who are stopping it. Who are these people clinging to these old beliefs? Christians, basically. People who believe in the old ancient God of the Bible and all the primitiveness and anger of the, you know, the, the, the false things that people accuse God of, God of being just as judgmental, vengeful God and who's unfair and hypocritical and Christians are hypocrites and all this kind of stuff. And that these people who believe in things like, you know, marriage between only between a man and a woman and that the gender you're born with is the gender you should uh, maintain and that, you know, you shouldn't kill babies in the womb. And because you know, that's, they, they don't believe in a woman's right to choose they believe in these conservative values. That's Does that sound familiar? Isn't that the stuff you're hearing these days? That the people who hold these views, who hold traditional Christian views, are actually the backwards people, the anti-science people? Because if you know, if you don't believe that man is causing global warming, there's something wrong with you. If you don't believe that a woman should have the right to abort her baby anytime she feels like it, you're behind. If you don't believe that a person can choose their gender anytime they, believe, anytime they feel like it, that you're wrong, you're backwards, you're unscientific. You all, we are, are being told, we Christians are being told that we are the backwards people, that we are the ones that are holding mankind back from advancing forward. And that there's nothing new about that. It's more prominent these days, but this has been going on for a long time. It's just becoming, I think as we get closer and closer to the end, it's just becoming more mainstream. But this has always been this idea that the evolution of mankind to this higher spiritual state, which is frankly, it was just satanic and paganism, paganistic, but what's holding it back are people who maintain the belief in the true God of the Bible and, and who believe in Jesus and who are Christians. So when Christians are taken out of the way, the Antichrist is going to come along and say, hey, these people who were taken away, they're not good. They're not godly. They're the ones who are holding us back. And now that they're gone, we're ready for this new age of enlightenment, this new age of the brotherhood of mankind, this new enlightenment with the ascendant masters who will come and help us and take us to this next level of secular evolution. So he's going to blaspheme the Christians who dwell in heaven 
And they're going to paint a picture of God, the God of the Bible, not as the God of, of loving kindness, the God who wants the best for us, the God who wants to dwell with us and have a relationship with us in heaven. No, they're going to paint God as this mean, oppressive, intolerant, hypocritical being that, you know, again, this the way God is seen in the secular world. And the Antichrist is going to uh, foment all of that and lead people to believe all those negative things. So he's going to make them believe a negative thing about God, about Jesus, and about Christians. And, and that is, and people are going to eat that up because they, they want, everyone wants to believe that they're good. No matter how bad you are, you want, we want to believe you're a good guy. Hitler believed he was a good guy. Stalin believed he was a good guy. Charles Manson believes he's a good guy. All these people, everyone believes that they are good, that they are right. No one, no one believes that they're evil, even if they are. They, everyone justifies themselves. Only Christians don't. Christians are supposed to justify God. We're supposed to admit that we are sinners, that we are bad, and God is good. And that's the humility that Christians are supposed to embrace. However, if you're secular, you believe that you're good. And you want to make this world your heaven and you want to you know, ascend and be like God yourself. That that was the original lie that Satan told in Don't Adam and Eve that you can be like God, that you're actually a God is holding things back from you. And again, it's interesting because that's if you look really deeply into the philosophy of paganism all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, they say that the that God was withholding knowledge from Adam and Eve and that Satan, the serpent, was the good guy. Seriously, they say that the Satan, that the, the Nakash, the serpent in the garden, wanted to give Adam and Eve this knowledge of good and evil, and God was holding it back. So God was the bad guy. God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not because it would harm them, but because God wanted to keep them in ignorance. The Nakash, the serpent, Satan, the, the light bringer, Lucifer, was trying to enlighten man and said, eat from that tree so you can have the knowledge so you can be like God. So Satan's the good guy, God's the bad guy, and that's what the Antichrist is going to purport. And that is going to be sort of the platform of his, his, his ascendancy. And again, people, the secular people who are left behind are going to eat it up because it feeds right into their justification of themselves. And they will say, yo, you're right, Mr. Antichrist. Obviously, that's not gonna be his name. You're right. These Christians were the ones holding us back and they're finally gone. And this God that they worshiped, you know, he is the wrong, he's the bad guy. We should be worshiping the light bringer, the one who wants to, Satan, Lucifer, the one who wants to bring enlightenment to man and wants to take us to that next level of human evolution, of spiritual evolution. And that's really what his message is going to be. And so while the Antichrist will be the one who starts who starts growing and starts his, his level of conquest, he's not going to complete it all in, in, in just this, um, the aspect of this one writer, because we've got a few more writers coming who are going to continue down the road of a Satan's false apocalypse. And we're going to start talking about the next two in the next episode, because the next episode, we're going to talk about the red horseman and the black horseman. And while the antichrist is going to begin his conquest and begin sowing the seeds of dissent, and, and begin casting God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Christians who dwell in heaven as the bad guys. Before that fully takes hold, you know, we've got to deal with some other aspects of this apocalypse, next two writers. So in the next episode, we are going to start talking about writer numbers two and three, the red horseman who's called war. I don't believe it's actually war. There will be an aspect of war to it, but I believe it's something more basic and primal 
And the reason for him taking peace from the earth is not because Satan just likes war, which he does. I think there's actually more sinister and more supernatural reason behind it. And then we're going to talk about the black horsemen. And I think that is not famine because of scarcity. I think it's a controlled economic famine. And I think it's all about population reduction, which is another one of the main tenets of the people who want to rule the earth. They want to reduce the population. They want to they want to reduce massively reduce the population. That is one of the one of the main tenets of all the people who believe in one world government. Um, and we'll talk about it more in the next episode. So we are at 36 minutes. So I'm going to wrap things up. Um, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please give me your comments on this. I'd love to hear them. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason here on YouTube. Um, also uh, subscribe on faithbyreason.net. And again, next week we are going to continue looking at the the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse by looking at the, the riders on the red and the black horse. And I will talk to you next week.